As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to God to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Hear my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. Oh, that my people would listen to me, if they would only walk in my ways. How quickly I would subdue their enemies and satisfy them with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1004. Again, the text is Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, found on page 1004. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our second scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. In the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 972. Again, the text is Romans 8, 28 through 32, found on page 972. And it reads, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will it not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Thank you, Ron. Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the pleasure, the joy, the opportunity, the necessity of reading your word, of studying your word, of reflecting and meditating upon your word, of applying your word. Father, may your word this morning bring comfort. Father, may it bring wise counsel. May it bring clarity of purpose and priority. Father, may it bring a sense of beauty. May we look upon Jesus for who he is. May we see you, Father, by the power of your spirit for who you are and what you have done for us. Would we see your goodness, Father, and seek to live lives of true, uncompromising goodness. Father, show us what that means this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Well, we've been walking, this summer we've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we come to um, speak of what, what Paul calls goodness, as Ron read for us in Galatians chapter 5. And I'll, I'll be honest, there's a... Um, there's sort of a, uh, a confluence or an overlapping nature to the fruit of the Spirit. 
Uh, in fact, for example, elsewhere Paul will say that love, in a sense, unites all the other virtues together. That love is infused, and there's an overlapping and relating of the various ones. And goodness uh, is a, a number of these, uh, these fruits of the Spirit, if you will, I've been able to sharpen and really give you a sense of clarity of well, what is really meant here. When it comes to goodness, I'm not quite as sure. I have some ideas. I'm going to give you my best shot this morning. But it's just more, more the idea that... Um, that I, I'm, I'm a little less certain this morning exactly what Paul is after, but I'm not going to let that stop us to try to give it the old college try, if you will. Um, so what, where I want to begin this morning is actually in the 1940s and 50s and 60s uh, in a wonderful book that I've read twice because it was simply so good and so important uh, historically. Uh, history professor David Chapel uh, speaks of, a, uh, of the story of... Um, the black movement of, of the time, of what's often called the, the civil rights movement. He writes in this book, A Stone of Hope, and the, the subtitle is The Prophetic Religion, is Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. And, and Chapel talks about how the leaders of the black movement of that time, the 40s and 50s and 60s, how, listen to this, how they knew they were fighting a losing battle. You go back and you reread the documents, the discussions, the, the letters, the communication, and the leaders just knew they weren't going to win. They believed the enemy was too strong and too stubborn. People weren't going to change their ways when it comes to the race and racism. They were utterly convinced, and I think this is so fascinating, the black leaders were utterly convinced that left to themselves, people don't change. So there was this, if you will, cynicism, and I think you could, for the experiences of, of, of what they had and all that they went to, you could see without that conclusion would be, that cynicism would, would feel very justified. So when people don't change, when you know you're fighting a losing battle, what do you do? I mean, what's to be done? I mean, should you keep fighting? How should you keep fighting? Why fight if you know you're not going to win? This question, along with their observation that people don't change, led them someplace amazing. Do you know where it led them? To the scriptures. Led, led them to the Bible, and specifically, it led to a, to a certain place in the Scriptures. Can you guess? Who in Israel's story did God raise up again and again to bring Israel's attention to their acts of injustice and oppression? Whom would God raise up these lonely voices Calling in the wilderness, calling, pointing out the sin of God's people, pointing out the sin of a recalcitrant, disobedient, defiant, self-righteous people of God. Whom would he raise up to point out their fake ritualism, their empty praise? The prophets, right? God would raise up prophets. And how fruitful were they? It's so hard reading the Old Testament sometimes because you re just realize, I mean, I mean Jesus, when, when Jesus finally shows up, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
Could a prophet die outside your walls, right? Basically, he says, you know what? I mean, you guys are good. Oh, oh, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Right? What a heartbreaking thing. What a, what a sobering thing, right? To, just be, to be honest about self-reflection. Thing. You know what? Wow, we at Good Shepherd are no better than those Israelites. We're no less capable of that, just that self-deception that says, you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. When we're actually part of the problem. But again, how fruitful were these, these black leaders? Now, let me just share a quote from Chapel. Chapel writes here, he says, The black movement's nonviolent soldiers were driven not by modern liberal faith and human reason. You're not going to reason people out of racism. That's what they believed. You're not going to do it. You're not going to sit down. Now, now, just listen. Let's talk about this and you'll no longer be a racist. That, there's two deep-seated people don't change by mere rationality. The black movement's nonviolent soldiers were driven not by modern liberal faith and human reason. Now, remind you, the guy who's writing this is not a Christian. Okay? He's, he's just describing historically his understanding of what motivated these leaders. So what motivated them? They were driven not by modern liberal faith and human reason, but by older, seemingly more durable prejudices and superstitions that were rooted in Christian and Jewish myth, the Bible, okay? Specifically, they drew from a prophetic tradition that runs from David to Isaiah and the Old Testament through Augustine and Martin Luther to Niebuhr in the 20th century. He continues, the thinkers who were active in the black movement at least the ones for whom I was able to track down an extensive intellectual record, believed that the natural tendency of this world and of human institutions, including churches, is toward corruption. Got that? Where are we all? Where are humans going individually? Where are humans going organizationally, institutionally? Where are we always slouching toward? Corruption. Like the Hebrew prophets, these thinkers believed that they could not expect that world, I'm sorry, could not expect the world and the institutions within it to improve. Do you see the cynicism? We're not going to win this. We're going down. He continues, nor, but nor could they be passive bystanders. Isn't that interesting? Okay, okay we're not going to win. Things are probably going to get worse but that doesn't mean that we can't do anything. We can't just sit there and go, well, it's just, you know, just, let's go do something else. That would be, they would be culpable. They would be collaborating. They couldn't stand by and do nothing. He continues, they had to stand apart from society and insult it with skepticism about its pretensions to justice and truth. These leaders had to instigate catastrophic changes in the minds of whoever would listen, and they accepted that only a few outcasts might actually listen. They had to try to force an unwilling world to abandon sin, in this case, quote-unquote, the sin of segregation, unquote. The world to them... Man, this is so powerful. The world to them would never know automatic 
or natural progress. How un-American. As Americans, we're always getting better, right? I mean, we're, always, we're, I mean, we're better. We're just always getting better. Things are always going to get better. There's this, this assumption of progress. And they were like, nope, not at all. In fact, he concludes here, it would only, it would only, the world would only use education to rationalize its iniquity. Amazing. So there's no hope in higher education. There's no hope in public education. Oh, we'll just teach them out of racism. Now, listen again. This focus on fighting, on being faithful, upon being fearless, even when there's going to be no fruit, it has a name. I think it's what Paul calls goodness. Let me say that again. This focus on fighting, right? Staying in the fight, staying faithful, being fearless with the realization that you may never see fruit is what Paul calls goodness. Goodness keeps on caring even when it's very costly, even when it seems to be completely pointless. Goodness keeps caring when you can't connect the dots between being faithful and being fruitful. I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Even when no one else is doing it. Even when I know I'm going to be misunderstood. So again, goodness is is focusing on being faithful even when it feels fruitless. Who does that? <laughs> the answer, no one. No one does that, right? Not, no one, at least not on their own. In fact, just turn real quick. We're in Romans 8, but let's turn to Mark chapter 10 just to show you. Um, it says there's this exchange that Jesus has with, uh, with a, um, a, young, a young person, a, a, a ruler or a rich person, and... Uh, it's on page 868 of your pew Bible. Again, this is Mark chapter 10. I'll start in verse 17. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher. Good. Good teacher. He asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? First, Jesus' rather intriguing response here. Verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good. No one is good except God alone. Isn't that interesting? Now this, is, uh, this has been an interesting sermon for me as I've been thinking about this week because it's been so convicting for me. And I'm probably the one who needs to hear this sermon more, just as much if not more than all of you. I am a productivity junkie. It's one of the things I loved about the military, right? You have this saying in the military, we do more before breakfast than most people do all day. This, I am this high-octane, high you know, achievement-oriented, let's-get-this-done sort of person. I want to be able to wake up in the morning and I want the world to be a different place by the time I'm, I'm done with the day. I want to move the needle. I want to be able to see the progress. I want to know that I'm making an impact. I want to make a splash right here today. And if I can't do that, I'm going to go sulk in self-pity. Now let me ask you, 
when you hear this notion of goodness as being a focus on being faithful, even when it feels fruitless, when it feels futile, do you, can you relate to that? I mean, do you regularly have feelings of just wondering, is any of this worth it? Is my faithfulness, I mean, is it really going to be fruitful? Is it really, does it really matter? Because I think it's an indicator of whether or not we're living a faithful life. We're pursuing goodness. The point here is that, that if we actually seek to be, to pursue goodness in the sense that we're talking about, that we're going to know, we're going to have very familiar with feelings of just futility. So let me just give you the opposite and kind of jump into Romans 8 here. I'm going to just, um, the opposite of goodness here, as we're thinking about it, is being fair-weathered. Instead of being focused on being faithful, we're fair-weathered. We're fickle. Nah, sure. And then they say, nah. We're in, we're off. We're, we're hot, we're cold. And in addition to that, the opposite of goodness is being focused on what is fleeting. You know, it's just... They recently did a... Uh, uh, Sarah and I are reading this book um, called iGen. It's about the Generation Z, or what's called the, the, you know, the iGen or iGeneration. Um, and it's one of the things that, when we're, there's all this data in the book, and one of the, one of the things that the, the researcher says is that uh, they, they did this, you know, what do you call it, experiment where they downloaded this uh, software onto all these college students' uh, laptops. And the, 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 the software was able to monitor how frequently the screen changed. Does that make sense? So anytime there's a, there's a, you change from one program to another program, say from the web to email to Word document, whatever it is, and it was amazing like how, how, how briefly or how quickly students were moving back and forth from one screen to the next. This screen, that screen, this screen, that screen. There's not this sustained focus on one particular thing. There's a sense of a, a focus on what is fleeting, what is ephemeral. Check email, check Facebook, check Instagram, check, you know, whatever. And just this just inability to focus in a sustained way. There's been a complete, I mean, well, complete, a, a significant decline in just reading. There's one, a wonderful quote that she had from this anonymous teen that said, said, yeah, my dad's still one of those people who reads books. He hasn't figured out that the internet's replaced books. And it's like, wow, that is so, I mean, <laughs> do you know what you just said there? <laughs> I mean, the internet will never replace books, I promise you. Um, anyway, but, but the point is that we, that, that, is, that is who we are. That is who I am. I'm fickle. I'm thinking about all these different things. And it's, it's, so the opposite of goodness is being distracted by what is trivial, in an aching world, it's being absorbed in what is honestly irrelevant. I can remember a number of years ago, I don't know why this is stuck in my mind. This has happened on many occasions, a number of occasions. But I went to a funeral of a man whose life was celebrated by one, made, one central thing. His love for golf. Golf buddies, family, they all got up and just talked about, just loved golf. That was his life. I left thinking this man's life could be summarized by golf. 
Sit. Now wait a minute. Wait, wait, hold on. Well, what's wrong with golf? Is golfing a sin? No, absolutely not. In and of itself, nothing is wrong with golf. So what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal when you ask the question, what kind of world do we live in? Look at the front of your bulletin. You guys will see, you'll see those words there ever so often on the front of the bulletin, right? Beautiful words. To all who are weary and seek rest. You know people who are weary? People are exhausted. The U.S., let's think about this. The U.S. is number one in single-parent households in the world. Isn't that amazing? 130 countries surveyed. We're number one in in single-parent households. In fact, almost one in four kids, that's under under age 18 in the U.S., live with one parent. Do you think those single parents are exhausted? Sarah and I just get exhausted as two parents. One in four children with a single parent. Are they weary? To all who are weary and seek rest, Right? Go talk to Brian and Kelly Stevens about their experience fostering little ones and what they have seen. The weariness. Go talk to Terry about volunteer work at a, as a court-appointed special advocate for abused and neglected children. Unbelievable. Talk to her about it. It's amazing. Or just go play golf. We'll look at the next line. To all who mourn and long for comfort, people are grieving. They are battling depression. Did you know that in America since 2007, the rate of moderate to severe depression has doubled? And who's struggling most? Where is, uh, uh, where is depression most acute along the age range? It's high school, college. From like, like number one is age 12 to 17. Second is 18 to 25 struggling with depression, they're mourning, they're grieving, there's a sense of loss. Who, uh, who here has loved ones who've passed in the last few years? Right? Do you know? Do you know who all has lost loved ones? Do you know? What are they going through right now? Go talk to Jim Armbrecht about what it was like to lose his mom to COVID and not be able to see her before she passed, not to be able to attend the, the small graveside service she had. What would that be like? The grieving to those who mourn and long for comfort. Go talk to Michelle about losing your father, George, right? Who many, many of us knew. Go talk to the many parents in this room whose relationships with their adult kids are just strained, difficult. And they grieve. They grieve how lost their kids are. Go ask the people in this room about how many, how many of them dread the holidays. Or just go play golf. To all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, how many of us have given up battling our fears, battling our cravings? How many of us would be terrified if anyone else knew how much we struggle with sin and how much we fail every day? How many of us men are addicted to porn, to the bottle, to work? How many of us women are in a life and death struggle with anxiety and fear? Go talk to the persons in this room who are battling chronic illness, diabetes, severe back pain, GI tract issues, etc. People are struggling. They're, they're embattled. They're weary. Or we could just, you know, go play golf. 
He continues, to all who are strangers and want a home. On February 21st, this, February, February this last year, Har, uh, Harvard uh, did a study about loneliness and concluded that 36% of all Americans, that's one in three, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. It goes on to speak of what it calls the, quote, the steep costs of loneliness, including early mortality and a wide array of serious physical and emotional problems, including depression, anxiety, heart disease, substance abuse, and domestic abuse. Go talk to the singles here in our, in our church, to the widows, to the widowers here at Good Shepherd. Ask them what it's like to leave the service today and return to an empty house. Go talk to the refugee families just across the way here, staying in the house next door, and ask about their lives. What, what are their lives? What's it like to be truly, literally a stranger, to be a foreigner? And then it concludes in, the, in front of your bulletin, to all who hunger and thirst for justice and peace. I, mean, I don't even need to talk about the rising crime in our cities, the loss of community in our neighborhoods, the way that opioids are wiping out our rural uh, communities. And then it concludes, look on the front of your bulletin, concludes, and to all who come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Is this church doing that? Are we pursuing goodness? Or are we pursuing golf? Now, now I want to ask a question and move to Romans 8. Why is it why is it that this idea of goodness, how, why is it I've defined it in this way? It's this idea of focusing on being faithful when we will often feel fruitless. Why is that? Why is it that if we actually choose to pursue goodness, if we seek to be faithful, that we will have those feelings of futility? I mean, what, what's going on there? And the answer is because of how greatly or how severely our world has gone south. The world is so deeply broken. You and I are so deeply broken that when it comes to actually pursuing goodness, it is just an overwhelming, uh, over, you face overwhelming odds. Again, I think that's why I started with, the, with, the, with the, uh, uh, the, the heroes, the leaders of the civil rights movement, because it just seemed so daunting. Think of it this way, as a surgeon, in order to do good, in order for a surgeon to pursue goodness, the surgeon has to go beyond the skin deep, by definition. Right? Why is that? Because the problem isn't just skin deep. In fact, those of you who've been to various kinds of surgery, right, usually the positive effects of the surgery are not even felt for, felt for a while at all. What, 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 do you, what does the patient feel at first when they come out of, out of surgery? And for the next days, John, what did you feel? A lot of pain, right? <laughs> and you're like, what was this? Is this really? Like, is this, this is, a, this is the surgeon is on my team, right? And he's really for me? And it's just, yeah. Because when you pursue goodness, there's going to be a lot of messiness in the midst of it. Is this really going to work? Is this really worth it? And I want to I just focus on Romans 8 just very quickly here, because in that passage, that very famous passage of Romans 8, it's so beautiful. Let me turn, just turn there real quick. We see this mystery of the pursuit of goodness. Again, Romans chapter 8 here. I love this. Just absolutely love this. 
There's some passages that are so familiar to me that I don't, I don't, I don't focus on them enough. Let me read it again. It's just verse 20. And we know, and this is so, again, this is the, I remember how I began the service by speaking of what was axiomatic, what was a fundamental theorem. Paul just assumes we know, hey, this is a given, and we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. And Paul, what's so important here is Paul is saying, listen, don't begin to think that you can see the good coming about right away. That there is this, when God is doing, pursuing good for us, there is often this inability to relate his faithfulness to the fruitfulness that comes out of it. Does that make sense? So often we're saying, I just, this doesn't feel good. This feels anything but good. But Paul's saying that when God pursues goodness, because he is good, in all that he's doing, it is for our good. Even though there's this seemingly this grand canyon between his, what's actually going on and the good that we hope to feel and know and taste. Paul is saying, and we know that in all things, in all aspects of life, in all circumstances, in all situations, God is working for the good of those who love it. And then it's so important, he goes on to define that good. Those who have been called according to his purpose, what's that purpose? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, here's the good, to the image of his son. What is the good that, that, that God is leading us to through all circumstances of life? Conformity to the likeness of Christ. And why is that? Because Christ is the one who conquered all, who overcame every temptation, every trial, who overcame every obstacle in his path. Jesus was the one who persevered, who triumphed, who won. And so God, through all, all of these circumstances of life, is conforming us to the one who overcame and so he speaks to us, so we see it in Romans 8, this notion of, again, of God in this mysterious way. There's mystery, there's, there's messiness, but somehow, in some way, he pursues goodness, and through all the mess, through all, the, at some point, the goodness begins to emerge. We become more and more like Christ. Now, let me just conclude with this, guys. I want to move, move, move us from Romans 8, I want to move us to Galatians. So turn to the right real quick. So I want to talk about, I want to parallel God's pursuit of goodness in our lives to the pursuit of goodness, uh, our pursuit of goodness in the lives of, of others. This is so beautiful. So in, in, on page 1004, 1004, Paul concludes his letter in, in chapter 6 in verse 7 through 10. Or so, I'm sorry, so it's on page 1005. He says here, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now stop me, stop there. Jesus, Jesus me, Paul is using a metaphor. What's the metaphor that he's using? He's saying that our lives are like what? Farmers. We reap and we sow. 
And how long does reaping, how long is sowing and reaping, how long between sowing and reaping? It's a good amount of time, right? You, you, I mean, as a farmer, you can work every day, do all kinds of stuff, and what happens? Nothing. <laughs> it seems as though nothing is happening. The rain comes. I mean, there's all, there's all these ways as a farmer that you feel so powerless. There's so many forces at play, so many different things going on. You wonder, is this, is this even worth it? And so I want, to just, I want that metaphor of, of the agriculture to really sink in. If we are to pursue goodness, if we are not to be distracted by all the, what, the, the, the whole world, and again, if you're a golfer, that, I, I, there's nothing wrong with golfing, okay? Go golf, do your thing. I'm just, don't, don't define your life, please, from golf. You can't do that in this world as broken, as fallen, as hurting, as enslaved, as lonely, as lost as it is. We just don't have time for that stuff. We don't have time to just lose ourselves in the NBA, to lose ourselves in you know, select sports, whatever it is, just to lose yourself. And to lose, I mean, it's just amazing how we lose ourselves in things that are, eh, they're good, they're okay. But they're not about the pursuit of goodness. And what Paul is saying here is, is listen, gang, it is so easy to just give into the flesh. And when you sow the flesh, it's gonna, you're going to sow these seeds, and guess what? You'll be fine. Day two, day three, day four, Week one, week two, you know, months will go by and you sow the flesh and guess what? Nothing. You can't see anything. Because it's an agricultural metaphor. Because it only, this is, this is what's so scary. It takes years. It takes decades for the, for the reality of that pursuit of the flesh to make itself known. And it's deadly. Paul says it leads what? To destruction. We just sort of give in and let do life and pursue our own things and just, you know, just go along just smoking and joking. And we just let the life, let life take us. Suddenly you wake up 30 years later and going, what in the world happened? How did we get here? It doesn't make any sense. I didn't, I didn't mean to do this. And conversely, Paul is saying, listen, if you sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. And again, the metaphor is the same. You're going to be sowing. So you're thinking, well, nothing's happening. I'm pursuing this in my marriage. I'm pursuing that as a parent. I'm pursuing this as a brother in the Lord. I'm pursuing this as a co-worker, as a classmate. And it seems like nothing is happening. And Paul's saying, hey, it's an agricultural metaphor. It takes time. And over the years, over the decades, there will be a harvest. And listen to what he says here. This is the whole point. Look at verse 9. Therefore, so let us not become weary in doing good. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's an agriculture. Or it's an agricultural metaphor. It's going to take time. A, a farmer gets exhausted and thinks, you know what? Why even bother? So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that encouraging? What a promise. Verse 10, Therefore, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What a beautiful exhortation. That's how Paul closes his, uh, his letter to the Galatians. 
And let me just conclude with this. Jesus' pursuit of goodness, right? Was there ever anyone in human history who was more faithful than Jesus? No. Was there, was there, and yet, was there ever a life that was more seemingly fruitless than his? The most faithful, the most seemingly fruitless. Isn't that amazing? So we end in his life and we see that there was he, that he changed the world. <laughs> he changed the world. He was the farmer sowing seed. All right. You know, this, uh, let, me, let me finish where we began. The, um, this guy, David Chappell, speaking of uh, the civil rights movement of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, listen to how he concludes. He, he talked about how, remember how they said they all knew they weren't going to win. And yet we all know from history that what? Uh, yeah, they kind of did, right? He writes here, the black Southern activists did not win all, all of their goals, especially in the economic realm. They did not achieve equality, but grounded as they were in a long tradition of disappointed prophecy, they could not have expected to gain anything like heaven on earth. Well, yeah, right. You know, the, new, the new order is not coming yet. Right? Heaven, the new heavens, new earth is not here yet. We, we, we're not hoping for that. But measured by historical standards of realism, their achievement was extraordinary. Arguably the most successful social movement in American history. Isn't that amazing? That's what happens when you, in a prophet-like way, in a farmer-like way, I am going to commit myself to the doing of good I'm going to be, I'm going to focus on being faithful even when it feels so fruitless. God in time will bless the seeds that we sow. Are you game? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.